welcome to this podcast from Penrith Church of Christ. If there is anything in this message that you would like to talk about further, please go to our website, www.cofcpenrith.org. That's www.cofcpenrith.org. Now let's listen to Pastor Dave Crocker. Today we're focusing on verse 8. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. This is a a really hard passage to to preach because I don't think any of us would particularly get up here and say, well, my heart's pure, I'm I'm good to go. If if that's you, fantastic. If you could fly around the room on your way out the door, that'd be awesome. I think to a, a greater or lesser extent, the problem is we know ourselves, right? We know our thoughts, we know our deepest desires, we know the the stuff that that goes on. And the problem is that this verse says, blessed are those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. Sometimes it's easy to see the truth of something by considering its opposite. In this case, the opposite of a pure heart would mean an impure heart or a wicked heart. The Old Testament and the New Testament uh, are quite a, a contrast. In the Old Testament, uh, a lot of what we see is about the outward appearance, about looking like people had it together, doing the right thing, being seen to, to say the right stuff and do the right stuff. And, and that's what the Pharisees that Jesus was quite critical of were about. If you just do this stuff, you'll look good like us. You'll look like you've got it all together. And then the New Testament comes along and Jesus begins to unwind that And now he starts talking about an inward transformation. It's not enough to look right on the outside, but we must become more like him, changed and transformed into the image of Jesus. If we were having a moment of honesty this morning, and given it's church, we probably don't want to, I think many of us would default to an Old Testament position quite quickly. We make judgments based on the outward appearance. Maybe not you, maybe people in other churches, but we we can look at people and really quickly sum them up. Are they our kind of people? Do they dress like us? Do they look like us? Or are they different? And, And people can come in and we can make a whole lot of assumptions based on their appearance. I've been criticised in the, in the past uh, for the clothes I wear, the way I do my hair or my facial hair, for not preaching with a tie. Uh, all sorts of things. And, and in fact, my reading of the Bible, I think God goes to great pains to say he doesn't really care what someone looks like on the outside. He cares who they are on the inside. That's my reading and my understanding of of the Bible, God cares about the heart of a person more than he cares about the appearance of a person. In fact, I've got a, a friend in New Zealand who is an uh, Anglican minister. But if he walked into this church or just about any church that, that he would choose to walk into, people would be quickly putting a food parcel together for the guy. Dreads down to his back, tattoos. He, he never, ever wears shoes. I've never seen him in a pair of shoes. He looks like a homeless person. He looks like that because that's the community that he works with. They are the people that he's reaching out to. Yet he would walk in and we would make an assumption of him based on how he looks. 
Church, God cares about our heart. In the Old Testament, when, when the prophet Samuel is told that he's going to anoint someone as king and, and he's got to, to go to Jesse's uh, family and, and all the sons are lined up except David who's out looking after the sheep and he starts at the, the oldest boy and he was a lot like me. He was really handsome and well built and, and really skillful and he said, surely this is, is the guy. Look at all that he's got. And God says, well, no, I don't judge a person's appearance but the outside. I look at the heart. Goes all the way down the line, ruling out, and eventually they have to call for David, who didn't look like the kind of person who would be king, but he had a heart after God. When I started this series, I said Jesus was setting an impossible standard, and it's no different here. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. But the good news for us in that the other passages that I've looked like where God set an impossible standard there's been a way that, that Jesus meets that impossible standard on our behalf, and it's actually no different here. So the first thing that we learn from this beatitude is Jesus is concerned with our heart. It's not just enough to clean up our act on the outside. That's perhaps one of the things, that, and I've said this early in the series, that's most misunderstood about Jesus. He didn't come and do away with the law. In fact, he made it so much harder. Now, in Jesus, not only is murder a sin, hating someone is as much a sin as murder is. But the bar's actually gone higher to a standard that none of us will ever be able to achieve. And that's where the grace of Jesus Christ comes in. That's where his death and resurrection for us comes in. Jesus says that we're accountable for our attitudes, for the, our heart and our thoughts of our mind. He says this in Matthew 23, beginning in verse 25. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgent. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. It's a pretty clear picture Jesus is painting. But it's not the appearance that matters, it's the inside. It's the heart of the matter. And that's what he would be communicating to us today if, if it was him teaching this, that he cares about your heart. He cares about your, your motives, the thoughts of your mind, more than he does about how you look. The aim of Jesus wasn't to reform the manners of society, but to change the hearts of sinners like you and me. An example, Jesus wouldn't be satisfied with a society that had no acts of adultery. He says, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that everyone who even looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, he's lifted the standard. Not only do we not have to do the sins, but we can't even entertain them in our lives anymore. The heart of who you are and the secrecy of your thoughts your feelings when nobody knows but God. The invisible root matters as much to God as the invisible as the visible branch. It says in 1 Samuel 16, as I said, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. From the heart are all the issues of life. Matthew 12, 33 to 34, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. For out of the abundance of the heart, 
the mouth speaks. This is a really powerful scripture. We're not judged by what we say or even how we act. We're judged by the outcome of what we do, the fruit. The fruit is the result of the seeds that we sow. A leadership principle that that I've had to come to terms with is people don't catch what you say, they catch who you are. That means more important than the words that I speak here on a Sunday is the kind of life that I live because we reproduce after our own likeness. Paul says to uh, the the church in uh, Ephesians, imitate me as I imitate God. In 1 Corinthians 11, 1, he says, um, uh, sorry, Ephesians 5, 1, be imitators of God. 1 Corinthians 11, 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He's saying, follow my example. Do what I do, because when you do that, you will become more like Christ, because I'm reflecting who he is. The heart is utterly critical to Jesus. It's interesting, he says, for out of the abundance of, Of the heart, the mouth speaks. If we want to know where our heart's at, listen to the words that come out of our mouth. If we want to know what's really going on on the inside of us, examine the things that we say, how we react in certain situations. Jesus says, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, fornication, you know, I heard on the, the news again recently about a, a lady on a bus who went on a, a racist uh, tirade uh, against an Asian family. We hear it all the time these days. If Jesus was here, he wouldn't say it, it's a racism issue. He would say it's a heart issue. The issue is the person's heart and what is coming out of the mouth is simply a reflection of that which is going on in a person's heart. You know, historically the heart... Uh, was, was thought to be the, the centre or the seat of thinking. The, the Egyptians believed that the, the heart was the source of our memory, of our emotions, of our personality, and that in judgment the heart was weighed. That's why in the mummification process they would preserve the heart, but they would throw away the brains and the lungs because they saw them as the things that kept the heart cool. It was just part of that system. Later on, Aristotle also thought that the heart was a source of intelligence, motion, and sensation. Jesus is not necessarily affirming all of that, but what he's saying to us today, your heart matters. What's going on on the inside matters because it's a true reflection of who we are. Any one of us can hold false pretenses for a while. Any one of us can make ourselves look good on the outside and and, and learn how to say the right things and, and do the right things. But Jesus gets to the heart of the matter. So the Bible tells us that with a pure heart we'll see God. So this morning I want to examine three things. What it means to see God, what it is to be pure in heart, and how are those two things tied or bound together? Firstly, What is it to see God? Well, there are three things I think that are reflective of what it means to see God. Firstly, it means to be admitted into his presence. In the the great story of Moses leading the people out of slavery in Egypt, there's plague after plague that are are hitting the, the, the people when Pharaoh chooses to harden his heart. Even though the cost of it all is huge, Pharaoh's heart 
is hardened and he continues to pay the cost. And in fact, he says these words to Moses, get away from me, take heed to yourself, never see my face again, for in the day you see my face you shall die. And Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. See, when a king says, you will never see my face again, he means I will never grant you admission again into my presence. When we call the doctor and we say, can we see the doctor today? We're not asking, can I see him from a distance? We're not asking, can I have a picture of the doctor? We're saying, can I see the doctor personally today? That's what we seek to do. That's what it it means for us to see God, that we're admitted into his presence, that we're not excluded because of of the sin. And I I talked about righteousness here recently. I'm not going to go into it all again this morning. But when Jesus Christ died, he made a way available for us to enter the presence of God. We can come boldly to God, not out of a a place of going, oh, woe is me, I'm such a horrible sinner, but we can stand with confidence because of the forgiveness of our sin. Because Jesus became our substitute. He paid the price for us. The second thing it means is to be awestruck by his glory, a direct experience of him. The first time I I ever remember experiencing God, I'd grown up in a, a Christian family, I remember as a young boy, calling mum to mum and saying, I, I, I want to follow Jesus, and we prayed together. But I remember the first time I ever experienced God. I was in a meeting, there were lots and lots of people there, and the preacher was speaking. I was 10 years old, and he invited people to come down the front for prayer. And, and, and in that moment, I felt this compulsion that I needed to go forward. And I said to mum, I'm just going down the front, and mum was trying to stop me because I'm a 10-year-old boy, and that's what parents do. But I ignored her. And I walked down the front and I stood there and I waited and he came past and he, he laid hands on me again to pray for me. And I remember that, that just bursting into tears. I felt God for the very first time in my life. I'd experienced a moment where God, I felt like heaven had touched earth. As a 10-year-old boy, that's why I love praying for kids. I love an opportunity to lay hands on them because I experienced God as a 10-year-old and it forever shaped my life. In the Old Testament, there's a story of Job. Job was a man who loved God and followed God, and his life reflected that. And he went through an incredible amount of testing to, uh, to see whether he really did love God and trusted God and what his character was like. And he endured an incredible amount. And towards the end of the story, it says that he encountered God in a passing whirlwind. And he says this in Job chapter 42 and verse 5. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. So most of of our spiritual connection with God comes through the word of God or or the the work of God around us. We we see images and reflections. When we we face a tough situation and there's a a miraculous outcome or something happens that shouldn't have happened, we, we would use the language or we can see the hand of God in that or we can see God in that. I'm sure a lot of us have uttered those words when when something that shouldn't have happened does happen. The providence of God, and we say, oh, I can see God at work in that situation. For me, one of the the times I feel closest to God is is when I'm in nature, surrounded by trees, not in the midst of a concrete jungle, but but in in the midst of a forest, I feel a closeness to God that I don't feel anywhere else. We also 
now hear echoes and, and reverberations of his voice. We, we believe that God speaks to us. Psalm 139 says that the, God's thoughts towards us are more numerous than the grains of sand. God, God is continually thinking about you. His, his mind is directed to you. His heart is for you. And, and, and here in God, we believe that all of us have the ability with, with spiritual ears to hear what God is, is saying to us. And, and it's probably not going to be like my voice here now, like hearing that. But, but, but God speaks to us through, through our uh, emotions or our, our experience, uh, a leading, a thought might come to mind, a, a verse may, may jump out at us. God speaks to us. All we need to do is be able to listen. While we... Don't experience it in fullness now. The Bible says that a day will come when God himself will dwell amongst us again. His glory will no longer be inferred in the lightning and the thunderstorms and the mountains and the roaring seas. Our experience of God will be direct. Revelation chapter 21 says his glory will be the very light in which we move. So seeing God means being admitted to his presence, it means being awestruck by a direct experience of his glory, and it means to be comforted by his grace. Again and again in the book of Psalms, if you take the time to look through, just do a quick flick through, you hear a cry from the, the author of the psalm, God, don't hide your face from me. It's throughout the book of Psalms. And an example would be in, in Psalm 27, verse 7 to 9, David says, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. Hide not thy face from me. It's the same thing as saying, God, be gracious to me. This means that seeing the face of God is, is considered a, a comforting experience. If God shows his face, we are helped. If he turns his face away, we're dismayed. Now, obviously, it's a figurative thing. We're not directly seeing God's face sitting there. But Jesus promises us the reward of seeing God. There are at least three things implied. We'll be admitted to his presence, not kept in the waiting room. We'll be awestruck with a direct experience of his glory, and we'll be helped and comforted by his grace. So what does it mean to be pure in heart? A man by the name of Soren Kierkegaard wrote a book called Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. That's not a bad definition of purity, provided the one thing that we will is the glory of God. It's a, a thought that's found throughout Scripture. The closest Old Testament par uh, parallel to this beatitude is Psalm 24, verse 3 to 4. It's written by King David. He says this, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. We, we can understand what David means in this passage of having a pure heart by what the phrases that follow. It's a heart that has nothing to do with falsehood. It's painstakingly truthful, free from deceitfulness. See, deceitfulness, when we break it down, is willing two things. It's willing that we would be one way but have people think of us a different way. That we would think one way but think that others are thinking of us a different way. That people would see us as different to how we are. It wills two things when purity wills one thing. 
in the New Testament, James wrote some things, and he says this in James chapter 4 and verse 8, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you men of double mind. Just like in Psalm 24, the reference to a clean hands and a pure heart is needed to prepare us for drawing near to God. We can see James's definition of a pure heart there when he says you men of double-mindedness. Again, that's willing not one thing, but two things. So the double-minded man of verse 8 has his heart divided between the world and God, like a wife who has a husband and a boyfriend. Purity of heart, on the other hand, is to will one thing, our allegiance to God. Jesus himself communicates this in another way. In the Gospels, in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 37, he says, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, not with part of your heart, not with a double or a divided heart, but we love God with all our heart because that is what purity is, no divided allegiance. When I was younger, this was something that I really struggled with, and I'm sure it's true of many of us. In my late high school years and early university, I was really good at looking like I had it all together, looking like a good Christian. Come to church, I'd lift my hands, I'd sing, I'd serve. All the outward appearance, I was, a, had, was good, but I was really struggling living for God on Monday to Saturday when I was with my friends and, and I wasn't around the, the church world. I was living a double life. I wasn't willing one thing, I was willing two things. Purity of heart is to will one thing. God's truth, God's value in everything we do. The aim of the pure heart is to align itself with the truth of God and magnify the worth of God. If you want a pure heart, pursue God with single-mindedness. There's a verse that comes to mind in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 17. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father. I shared that thought this morning. We will one thing. So how are those two things bound together? Well, Jesus gives us part of an answer. He says that the pure will see God, and that purity is a prerequisite for seeing God. The impure are neither granted admittance to his presence, nor are we awed by the glory of his holiness, nor are we comforted by his grace. And in Hebrews 12, verse 14, it says, Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. In other words, if it was a beatitude, blessed are those who are holy, for they shall see God. And our heart should be that of Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 9. It says, who can say, I have made my heart clean, I am pure from my sin. And with the disciples who asked Jesus, how, well, sorry, who then can be saved? The answer from Jesus about how we have a pure heart is found in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 26. With man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. In other words, God creates a purity for us and in us that we cannot do on our own. 
and by his grace, we must seek that gift by praying with David, create in me a clean heart, O God. And we must look to Christ, who it says in Titus 2.14, gave himself for us to purify for himself a people. Response of our heart to God's act of creation and Christ's act of sacrifice is a single-minded faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We must become aware of double-mindedness, of willing more than one thing, of the times that we would say one thing and do another, where we would put on a front in one situation but be something totally different in another. A life of faith seeks one thing. Worship team, you can come join me at short message this morning. I just want to finish with a really important thought. Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 26 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Keep your mouth free from perversity. Keep corrupt talk from your lips. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Give careful thought to the paths of your feet and be steadfast in all your ways. The Bible tells us to guard our heart, to protect it because from our heart comes everything that we do. Another translation says from the overflow of our heart or from, from our heart come all the issues of life. It's our heart that dictates the kind of life that we live and we're told we need to guard our hearts. In our physical heart, there are things that can cause blockages. And in our spiritual heart, it's the same. We can harden our hearts when we engage in complaining, gossip, disputes. Christians are instructed many times to avoid grumbling, murmur and complaining. You find that in John 6, 43, Philippians 2.14, Exodus 16.3, we're supposed to be pure people. So we guard our hearts. We avoid thinking, saying, or doing particular things that aren't from God. And here's the blessing and the promise for us today. Find it in Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 to 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts, your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God is a protective force in our life. The peace of God guards our hearts and our minds because when we're faced with turmoil, when we're faced with opposition, when we're faced with hard situations, the peace of God protects us from hurt. It protects us, our emotions from going to where they shouldn't go. The peace of God is beyond our capacity to understand and it guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. God, I pray that you would... Help us to be people of one mind. God, that we would will one thing. 
and that is to serve you, to follow you, to live for your glory. God, we thank you for the grace of Jesus Christ that means even in our sin we can have a pure heart. God, we thank you for the forgiveness of sins. We thank you for the promise that if we confess our sins, you'll forgive us of our sins, you'll cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. We thank you for the bigness of the cross. That God, in our weakness, your strength is made perfect. Power made perfect in our lives. God, I pray that you would reveal to us the areas where we will more than one thing. God, the places we put on an image of something that's not really who we are. God, help us to be consistent. Help us to live lives that would honour you with all that we do. God, I thank you for your peace. Your peace that guards our heart and our mind, that protects us. God, thank you that you're at work in our lives. God, help us to reflect you in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Penrith Church of Christ. If there was anything in this message that you would like to talk further about, please go to our website on www.cofcpenrith.org. That's www.cofcpenrith.org.